0: It was out of my way. On some mornings, when I headed to work in Chicago's Loop, it even made me late. But it seemed important to walk a particular route as part of my commute. I did this not because of a safety issue or to follow a construction detour. It was because I could walk by three community gardens. I got to walk past the tangles of vegetation, the wildness defying the garden plots, climbing over fences or up street signs. Bright faces of peonies and tulips in the spring gave way to poppies, sunflowers, dahlias, and coneflowers throughout the summertime. I got to watch cornstalks reach my knees, my shoulders, and then tower over my head throughout the season. Before I knew it, the soft orange blossoms along the pumpkin vine emerged and seemed like a kind of omen or forecast that summer was drawing to a close. Rounding the block to any of these gardens, I'd catch the fragrance of allium, basil, and sometimes just dirt, damp, rich earth, which waved in memories of home like some beckoning hand. It was a nice reprieve. There's something satisfying and calming to see all these green oases breaking out of the gray, rigid grid of the city. Don't get me wrong, there's lots to love about the city. There was always something new to explore. The culture, architecture, and glinting energy of a big city is exciting, and I certainly got spoiled having museums, concerts, and restaurants within walking distance or a short train ride away. But walking around Chicago's orderly grid, I often found myself thinking of Virginia Woolf's description of the city as a violent jolt. While Wolfe preferred it over the quietness of the country or suburbs, it was more of a shock to my system when I first moved there. During the first few months of living in Chicago, it seemed that I couldn't leave the apartment without getting hopelessly lost. I'd circle the same street corners thinking I was going one way, taking the wrong train, or feeling generally disoriented. I walked too slow and I talked too slow for the throngs of people downtown. It was one thing to visit a big city for a weekend, but this was the first time I got to live in one, and the sheer volume of people... Concrete and noise left me a little gobsmacked. And amidst the initial disoriented feeling, I often wondered what the lay of the land might have looked like before the skyscrapers were built. What trees grew where the Sears Tower now stands? What flowers bloomed along the foundation of my apartment building? What might have cropped up along the city shoreline of Lake Michigan? What grew here? And what could come back? My name is Allison B. Young, and this is Gathered, Story of Botanicals. This sense of relief at the sight of green foliage and plant life is a unifying one. Studies have shown that city streets with more trees offer greater relief from the heat generated sunlight beating down on the pavement. People tend to spend more money for a house on a tree lined street and there is a higher sense of well-being where there is more green space. There is even evidence that added greenery can have positive effects on children with ADHD. I saw this sense of relief firsthand when working at a flower shop outside Washington, D.C. It was common for people to wander into the shop, off the concrete pedestrian path, even if it was just to admire the flowers and plants around the shop. Like moths to light, people would gather around the entrance just to sit close to the climbing passionflower vine that encircled the shop doorway, the oversized plants spilling out of their pots, and to listen to the water fountains that greeted passers-by. Even without knowing it explicitly, there seems to be a sense that we can reap the restorative and health benefits of the natural world. While the city takes a little practice to navigate, there seems to be an intuitive almost magnetic pull toward green spaces. In some ways, it feels like ages ago that I made that commute, but it was passing those small pockets of wildness and green that I had started this episode of the podcast and the man I wanted at the center of this particular episode. Not long after I had first learned about him, COVID happened. Walking by the community gardens remained a daily part of my routine during the city's and in some ways it felt healing and necessary to see them. We live in a time where our world is inflamed, as though we have a collective fever or pain. These gardens offered a little relief from all of that. It also seemed important to write about this man during this time, but I struggled to find the right way, or even the right time, to write it out. I want to do right by his story, and by all of you so I'll try here today. The man is David Hossick, and he opened the first public botanical garden in America. When I think of botanical gardens, I think of the Garfield Conservatory, not too far from where I lived in Chicago. The Chicago Botanic Garden I visited with my aunt in the suburbs, and I think of the botanical garden in D.C. that I grew up visiting with my mom. The expansive, cathedral-like space is filled with trees and flowers and fragrance and steam, expertly designed and maintained with manicured precision. Hand in hand, my mom guided my toddler self past the small plaques of hard-to-read signs, admiring the vibrancy of it all. Orchids clung to tree branches, water lilies bobbed gently over murky waters, soft blossoms sprouted between the spines of ancient-looking cacti. They were surprising and striking. We were dazzled and enlivened by them, maybe even just by the air we shared with them. And everyone under the steamed window panes seemed to understand that these weren't frivolous or mere pretty faces from a distant landscape. I'd like to think there was a collective reverence in knowing that these flowers offered a great deal more. This botanical garden that we likely all know probably looks different than what David Hossack's botanical garden looked like, and the gardens that preceded him. Based on the organization, Botanic Gardens Conservation International, the term botanical or botanic garden today has a multifaceted definition. It is meant to further horticulture and cultivation skills for plants that could be lost to the wild, a place of research and development, a resource for education and a leisure destination. It's also a place designed to link plants with the well-being of people, helping conserve indigenous and local knowledge, and encouraging the sustainable use of plant resources for the benefit of all. But gardens devoted to knowledge, healing or medicinal knowledge in particular, can date back to ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia, old medical papyri in Egypt, Document dozens of herbs that we would recognize today, from aloe vera for soothing skin to licorice root for coughs. One source even suggests that the first botanic garden might have been developed in the 20th century BCE in China. The Emperor Shen Yong is considered the father of medicine and husbandry. Husbandry, oddly enough, has more to do with agriculture than. It refers to the care, cultivation, and breeding of crops and animals. The emperor may have tested medical qualities of certain herbs, and from those herbs discovered medicines to cure diseases. During the Middle Ages, it was common for monks to have monastic gardens, growing plants known to have healing powers. But the body of knowledge was hard to hang on to. It was often passed down as an oral tradition, and if a monastery could document a plant, it was done by hand, then passed on to a different monk to replicate. I imagine a monk hunched over a desk with a single candle, flickering and throwing shadows along the walls of his small room. He painstakingly scrawls out those intricate, illuminated manuscripts you might see in medieval bibles, complete with illustrations and ornamental letters. And While this meant documentation for these plans was likely beautiful and intricate, It contained knowledge that may not have been consistently reliable. It wasn't until Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in the 1400s that our botanical knowledge could truly grow. And it was knowledge that people outside the monastery walls were eager to have. For evidence of this eagerness, look no further than Nicholas Culpeper. The 17th century botanist wrote a reference book of herbal remedies in the 1650s. That reference book, titled The English Physician and Complete Herbal documents about 400 plants and their medicinal properties. And that book is still in print today. Back on this continent, in Mexico, another book was written and illustrated by two indigenous students in 1552 who compiled a wealth of knowledge around plants they found to be healing. Translated from their native language of Nahuatl to Latin, then translated to English, we might call the work The Little Book of the Medicinal Herbs of the Indians depicts about 200 herbs used by indigenous people and lays them out according to the classification system created by the Nawa. The documented knowledge of plants also meant that our understanding of the natural world and its impact on us could do something that our gardens could not, travel. For hundreds and thousands of years, all of these cultures have been working to make sense of the plant life around them. And to bring an order to them that could be easily accessed. Learning this only seems to solidify this idea that we have this gravitational pull toward the plants and flowers around us, and perhaps even more so when we are injured or sick. It is a universal and unifying trait among us. As we got better at this exchanging of knowledge around plants, soon the plants themselves were being exchanged. Working as a florist, I Haven't had a lot of hands-on experience as a gardener. Often when I'm processing shipments of flowers, I wonder what so many of the blooms look like as they grow, and before they're cut and packed for transport. The early settlers of America sent back specimens like that to Europe, but soon they were gathering their own collection of plants and plant knowledge. Native Americans had a rich and deep understanding of their homeland flora which settlers folded into their knowledge from the old country. Enslaved people coming in from Africa also brought with them knowledge of plants and the spiritual traditions tied to those plants. The Appalachian Mountains might be a prime example of how all the cultures and backgrounds came together to form a specific folk medicine tradition. Practices that came from Native Americans, Africans, English, Irish, Scottish, and German cultures. I say all of this as a way of tilling the metaphorical soil for David Hossack. The physician, botanist, and educator had fertile ground to work with as he studied to become a doctor during this country's infancy. Born in 1769 in New York City, to Mother Jane Arden and Father Alexander Hossack, a Scottish merchant, David Hossack studied at Columbia. Initially pursuing art, then following his fascination with medicine, He began his career as a doctor in a time when the medical treatments available seemed primitive and barbaric by today's standards. He lived in a time where humors referred to our bodily fluids, and in order to find balance among those humors, a doctor might prescribe bloodletting. Bloodletting, or bleeding as a medical treatment, was modeled off of menstruation and was meant to purge the body of bad humors and reduce inflammation. According to one source, the French imported about 40 million leeches a year during the 1830s to treat patients. Our founding father and first president, George Washington, was bled to help his recovery from a throat infection. He would die from that infection after 125 ounces of blood, which is just shy of a gallon, was drained from him. And if bloodletting didn't work, The alternative treatment might be calomel. Another term for this treatment, mercury. Lydia King wrote about mercury as medicine in a Toronto Star article, explaining that calomel was the medicine from the 16th to early 20th century. By itself, calomel seems fairly innocuous, an odorless white powder, but don't be fooled. Taken orally, calomel is a potent cathartic which is a sophisticated way of saying it will violently empty out your guts into the toilet. Not only that, but mercury has since been tied to cognitive ailments, numbness, tremors, and a condition called acrodenia, or painful tips, which afflicted babies as recently as the 1950s, when unsuspecting mothers were given the powder to try to soothe their child's teething pain. It's hard to imagine anything got done or how anyone could live a healthy life when the two main medical treatments likely did more harm than good. Reading up on the barbaric nature of these medicines seems almost laughable in its dark absurdity, but it also reminded me that medicine, and likely most sciences for that matter, works as a laborious and painfully slow process of elimination. And not only is it a slow process, but it's a process working in an ever-changing field. Discoveries define and redefine our understanding. This is something of a cruel irony because damage works so quickly. Recovery, healing, recuperation, these take time. They require patience, reserve, and a particular kind of conviction. Among the avid proponents of these harsh medicines was Benjamin Rush. His name might be familiar since he was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was also a physician, teacher, and mentor to David Hossack. And while Hossack likely received an education that might have been considered top quality for his time, he recognized the limitations of studying in America. To be considered one of the best doctors, he would need to travel to Europe to complete his studies and perhaps as an ode to his father, Hossack made the trip to Edinburgh, Scotland. Based on sources, his travels were likely a personal and professional awakening. He used the time to study botanical pharmacology and actually got his hands dirty by tending a three and a half acre garden as part of his training. He grew the very flowers and plants that he would use to treat sick patients. And it was a garden modeled off of those monastic gardens we talked about earlier. Rebecca Rico Berry describes how Hossack was particularly interested in how plants of the same order had overlapping medicinal properties and in identifying new species with great therapeutic value. Another key trait of these plants was their gentler effect on a suffering patient. Instead of violently emptying a patient's guts with mercury, Hossack realized plants could treat an illness without further weakening the patient's system. Part of Hossack's awakening was a vision he had for America. He believed what the nation needed was a new kind of garden. A botany classroom, a chemical laboratory, apothecary, plant nursery, horticulture school, and a lovely landscape all rolled into one. Equipped with his new knowledge and his vision for this new garden, he returned to America where he was quickly put to the test. The yellow fever outbreak of 1795 lined up with Hossack's return to the States. While his teachers and peers were leaning on the harsh treatments of mercury and bloodletting, Hossack washed patients in vinegar, wrapped them tightly, and then had them drink tamarind tree water from a fruit-bearing tree native to Africa, known to ease fevers, and diluted Virginia's snake root, a small, shade-loving ground cover plant with very small, pinkish-purple flowers. While these weren't instant cure-alls, did notice the patient's systems were not overwhelmed or compromised by the intense mercury treatments. His success may have spurred him on to pursue that new kind of garden. In 1800, at the turn of the 19th century, David Hasek began work on his garden. He had pitched his vision and its value with universities and state officials, but after receiving no funding, he decided to pay for it himself he bought 20 acres outside of a young New York City. One description of the grounds called it rural in appearance, with rock outcroppings, wild violets, and sweeping views of both rivers. He named it Elgin Botanical Garden, Elgin after his father's Scottish hometown, and immediately set to work plowing fields, harvesting indigenous flora, and collecting specimens from around the world hiring gardeners and laborers to help him create the first botanical garden of the United States. David Hossack's biographer, Victoria Johnson, writes in her book American Eden, David Hossack, Botany, and Medicine in the Garden of the Early Republic that the Elgin Botanic Garden had less in common with a beautiful city park than with the National Institutes of Health, the Food and Drug Administration, the Centers for Disease Control, and CRISPR gene editing laboratories. To see paintings and etchings of the land, it looks pastoral, picturesque, even utopian. This is part of what's remarkable about Hossack. He understood the possibilities germinating in the soil, and expanded the idea of all that could be harvested from a garden. And what's more remarkable is within six relatively short years, Hossack had amassed roughly 1,400 exotic species to add to the garden's collection. As the garden grew, a writer reporting on Hossack's work walked the grounds and published this description of it. Its inclination is toward the east and south, so that the plants have the advantage of the rising and midday sun. The conservatory and hort houses present a front of 180 feet. They are not only constructed with great architectural taste and elegance, but experience has also shown they are well calculated for the preservation of of the most tender exotics that require protection from the severity of our climate. The grounds are also arranged and planted agreeably to the most approved style of ornamental gardening. The whole is surrounded by a belt of forest trees and shrubs, judiciously checkered and mingled, and enclosed by a well-constructed stone wall. The writer acknowledges the holistic approach in the garden's varied design. Ossick considered not only that this tract of land would produce plants, both native and imported, that could become medical treatments, he also believed that the garden could benefit medical students and enhance our understanding of agriculture, the arts, and manufacturing. The garden is described as lush and diverse, yet even the tangles of vines and varied trees and shrubs seem to keep in line a sense of order that is as precise as a surgeon's hand the medical student could meander the garden, learning the flowers and plants, each labeled and strategically planted by their associated scientific order. Experiments for treatments took place at the garden as well, including mashed fig to relieve infected skin, sweet bay laurel to stimulate circulation, and creating a cough syrup from elderberries. The writer ends his piece by calling his writing such is an imperfect sketch of the beauties and riches of this ornament of our state and country. This feels like a significant piece to all the ailing we've faced through human history and continue to face. This seems like an insight that David Hosick understood from his training in the Edinburgh Gardens as well. That even in the middle of illness or pain, and in search of relief or cure or the root of an illness, holding a sketch, no matter how imperfect, of what relief looks like can guide us out of illness. What does recovery and a return to health look like, feel like? What does the ideal garden look like? How does it grow? I wish I could say Elgin Botanical Garden went on for decades and continued to thrive. I wish more people of Hasek's era saw what he saw a garden could be but after about 10 years, Hossack could no longer afford to keep the garden going. He sold it to the state of New York, which then passed it on to Columbia College, or Columbia University today. But by 1814, the garden was abandoned. And as sad as I was to read about Hossack's garden, and Hossack himself becoming lost to history, his life story gives me a lot of reassurance and hope. We are still drawn to green spaces, Our knowledge of plants and our own grown and found plants still travel across the globe. The fertile ground is still there for a new kind of garden. It seems that it's just waiting for us. That writer who walked the grounds of Elgin captured that connection to green that we all have. They captured the feeling that my mom and I had while walking DC's Botanical Garden. The collective feeling that everyone seemed to have, wandering the space a feeling of awe, admiration, and promise. The vibrance all collected within glass walls. Condensation obscured the oasis from the outside world. The crisp blue sky, the sunlight soaking into the city streets and reflecting off the dome of the Capitol building. And what's become of the land that was Elgin Botanical Garden? As Rebecca Rigo Berry succinctly puts it, To describe the land now, there are two words that would suffice, Rockefeller Center. Gathered Story Botanicals is a monthly podcast. New episodes are released on the third Friday of the month. That means you can come back on April 15th for the next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To fit all there is to know about gardens, and even David Hossick, could not have been done in one sitting. I say this often, but I could devote a lifetime to learning about one floral topic and still not know it all. Gardens are vast and complex, and there's a lot more to cover in future episodes. I hope you'll join me for those. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating the show on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. You can also head over to the website gathered-storiedbotanicals.com. you'd like more flowers in your life. Thank you for listening, and until next time,